Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So picture the scene for a second. You're walking down the street, just minding your own business. It could be anywhere in the world, anywhere at all. And then suddenly you are ambushed. Ambushed. Why don't I talk about crime? Talking about, I suppose, what you can call a re- Jewish religious vigilante. That's what, uh, <laughs> that's that's possibly a nice new way to refer to it. So there you you're you're just doing your thing, and the next thing somebody accosts you and asks you to participate in some Jewish ritual, shake a lulav, put on tefillin, anything like that. Has that ever happened? To you, love to hear your stories, where it happened, how it felt, what was your reaction. It is fresh thinking with Rabbi Shishla. We're going till three o'clock, and as always, you are very much part of the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your perspectives, your insights. You can WhatsApp oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine and SMS three four five one nine. A lot of our activity takes place on Twitter at Chai FM. Or personally at Rabbi Shish. And the reason I'm asking this question is because just recently, literally in the last few days, it's been quite a lot of conversation that I've been privy to around the notion of Jewish outreach. Now, <clears throat> I guess over here in, in Joburg, we are quite used to it. We're quite used to the fact that there are Jewish outreach organizations, and they're all different approaches and different methods, whether it be people inviting you over to some kind of a seminar, where they're going to sit down and bring you all these wonderful proofs to illustrate that the Torah is true and that God exists, or whether it just be a simple Shabbos meal with the compelling experience of fresh challah and some good old chicken soup, or whether it be a street-side mitzvah on the fly because there's a guy with a pair of tefillin and he's caught you, or a young girl giving out Shabbos candles. And there are various, for, uh, I guess, the variations on the theme of exactly what Jewish outreach is all about. So I'm probing here a little bit. and I'd like to hear if you've ever been on the receiving end or if you've been on the outreach end. So let's say you're the person who's doing this kind of activity. You're like me. You're in the business of sharing mitzvahs with uh, people you know or perhaps don't even know. One side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is if you're the person on the receiving end. Because where we're going to go today is into the conversation around Jewish outreach. What, what motivates it? What motivates it? Is, it? is it a form of what's very, very not cool in today's world, religious coercion? Or is it a positive thing? How do you see it? How do you see the willingness, the excitement, the interest that people have in, and I don't want to use expressions like saving your soul because that has all kinds of overtones that perhaps don't belong in this conversation. Yet, at the same time, it's very likely that there are people who feel that that's exactly what it is. You're preying on my soul, trying to bring me to some kind of a spiritual place that you, the practitioner, score points on the heavenly scoreboard. So that's why I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to explore this and see the different perspectives that people have, again, from both sides of their experience. That means to say that you might be somebody who is not observant and people then approach you or have approached you in the past or you're aware of that kind of thing, Jewish outreach. What do you think about it? How do you, how do you frame it? How do you understand it? Do you find it objectionable? Do you find it noble? 
And, and needless to say, of course, if you're on the other side of the tracks and you are the kind of person who reaches out and tries to engage Jews with their Judaism, how do you define it? How do you explain it? Um, when, when somebody had to ask you, what is it that you do? Why is it that you do it? How, how do you frame it? How do you explain it to people? I think in today's world where people believe very strongly and probably rightly so that they have their own liberties, that we live in a free world, you can choose how to think, you can choose how to live your life, and it's nobody else's business to interfere. And I suppose that even excludes in-laws, but that's subject for another conversation. So nobody else should be interfering in your life, I guess, against that backdrop. Maybe the whole concept of preaching a particular ideology or expecting people to follow a particular ideology may be a, a little bit more difficult, I suppose, to sell in today's world. So let's have that conversation. Let's explore. Let's try and understand what it's like to be on the receiving end. Let's try and understand the motivation of what it's like to be on the driving end. Uh, this is the time of the year. This coming Shabbos, we're going to read about how the Jews stood at the foot of Mount Sinai ready to receive the Torah. They stood like one person with one heart. Can you imagine that? There's a few million people all standing with a shared perspective and a shared dream and a shared aspiration. And over the course of Jewish history, it would, it would seem that we've kind of fractured into all little splinter groups and we no longer have that. So that's why these are good conversations to have because very often when there's misunderstanding, that breeds mistrust. And once you have mistrust, then that obviously starts to undermine anything in the sense of community. Here's a WhatsApp from Hoda who says, yes, at Kilani Mall, asked to shake Lulav. Loved it. Why? Because any Jewish person doing a mitzvah, I believe, is not a coincidence and should be proudly Jewish. Love it and never question. That's a nice response, and it's very reassuring, I suppose, to, to those of us who do that kind of thing because, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll be honest. And I've had many years, like any decent Chabadnik, I suppose, can claim, many years of mitzvahs on the fly. And what I mean by that is, you know, interacting with a person who you may not know and you may never see again, but identifying that that person is Jewish and offering the, them the opportunity to do a mitzvah, one mitzvah, to fill in Shabbos candles, uh, Hanukkah candles, the lulav, whatever it might be. So sometimes the response from people is really gratifying and people are, are, are truly Appreciative. A few months ago on the holiday of Sukkot, we put up a little sukkah at the Grayston Shopping Center. And there was a guy who drove in, saw the sukkah, came and parked right next to the sukkah so that he could have the opportunity to come and shake the lulav. Now, if I had looked at him through that, the kind of judgmental eyes that religious people, I suppose, are expected to have, I would have thought, this guy is not a candidate. He didn't look a candidate. You know, he had piercings and tattoos, and, and that does, that's not the typical person. You, if you want to look through judgmental eyes, it's not the person you would expect to come in and do a mitzvah. And, and there you go. He was like quite happy and proud, which to me, to be honest, was not actually a real surprise. As I say, if I was looking through judgmental eyes, then it would have been a surprise. But the, the idea is don't, don't, don't fall into that trap of looking at people just based on appearances. 
So that's nice. That's when you get this really gratifying response. Having said that, you can expect that people will also feel uncomfortable. Not everybody wants to wear their Judaism on their sleeve for one reason or another. So not everybody wants to be in the public space busy shockling a lulav or strapping tefillin around themselves in, in full view of whoever might be around. So some people are simply uncomfortable. Other people are uncomfortable perhaps just because they're, they're not sure. They're not sure what it is that's expected of them and how long it's going to take and what it's going to cost money. And uh, is it going to lead? Is it like one of those timeshare baiting things, you know, where they stop you on the, on, the, on the beach front or something and say, listen, we've got an amazing deal. Just come with us to the office. And then you've got to listen to three hours of lectures and sign up. And, 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 and there's a lot of small print. So I suppose people are wary in that sense as well. Who knows what this rabbi is going to do with me when he gets hold of me? And then you get people who are, and it does happen, who are uh, belligerent. They, they, they take offense. Don't start preaching to me in the middle of the street. So that's why I think it's a, an interesting conversation to have. And I, I think we need to probe what's the driving force behind it. Why would a person engage in Jewish outreach? What's the motivation? And that's something I suppose to be answered both from the person who's the end user, in other words, the person who's being approached, and from the practitioner, the person who is approaching. What, what motivates you? What drives you? What's, what's the reason? What's the reason that a person would feel that need to reach out? So that's what we're going to talk about over here today. And I'm very, very curious to hear uh, if you feel that it's something which should be celebrated or if you feel that it's something which you find offensive or something which you find uncomfortable um, because it's definitely part and parcel of the Jewish experience. There's no question about that. Jewish outreach has been with us for quite some time, will be with us, I imagine, for quite some time. So let's talk about it. Let's explore it. Let's see what it's all about. Now the WhatsApp over here, also from Hoda, says, United we stand, divided we fall. So whatever, however, do a mitzvah, it's one of the most heartwarming things to do. That's a nice message. It is a nice message. People, I suppose, will also say, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, that we can stand united, surely, in spite of practicing differently or perhaps not practicing at all so there's another angle on it you know because i do think that there are many people who feel that there's an element of judgment you look at me asconce because i'm not doing these things that you've decided you've dedicated your life to but perhaps i didn't have the same upbringing or the same exposure or the same interest or i have a different philosophy about life so let's be united regardless right why is there a sense that we have to be an homogenous community in order to be a united community i suppose that's part of the question that we have to explore over here today what would motivate what would drive why is it that a person wants you to do a mitzvah and there's probably not a one size fits all we're going to talk more in terms in terms of the idealistic state why should a person want you to behave or practice a particular way your thoughts on three four five one nine that's our sms line you can whatsapp oh six one eight nine five one oh one nine and tweets are coming through so let's have some more of those at high fm or at Rabbi Shish. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So I should have also given you the option of email on air at highfm.com as Ricky has done. And uh, I think we've uh, Ricky's going to open a whole can of worms over here. I can see this. So Ricky says, different questions. Speaking of judgmental eyes, do Jewish outreach organizations in Joburg, even though they may not work together, respect each other? 
It's a good question. And then he goes on to give a particular example. I'm not sure that I, I want to start sharing specific examples uh, on air. But that's a really good question, right? Because we acknowledge it's, a, I suppose, on a similar topic, not exactly the same topic. But we do acknowledge that there are various streams of Jewish outreach. And you cannot expect everybody to collaborate. But you can expect everybody to respect each other. And so Ricky seems to feel, based on somebody who he knows, that there is often a lack of that kind of respect between one kind of practitioner and the next. Now, that's a really good question because here you are preaching and you've got the truth, capital T, and you're going to bring people to a place of spiritual awareness and a better life, etc., etc. And then you can't get on with the next guy because he davens out of a different book to you because he goes to a different shul to you. So, yes, Ricky, you've raised a very valid and, I think, very pertinent question. So let's uh, let's – yeah, let's let's explore that. Here on uh, on here's another message, a great message, but very very funny. So this is Shalom. Shalom says it is no different than any other sales or marketing. Only a salesman tells you something you want but don't need, and a rabbi sells you something you need but don't want. <laughs> I like that. I think that's cute. I think it's definitely food for thought. Any other thoughts are welcome as well. Here's Josh on Twitter. Um, I had Josh's message. There we go. Josh says, in my limited experience, there's a lot of curiosity about heritage, and people are surprised at how rich it is after having been exposed a little bit to it. But I do think it has to be done in a non-judgmental way. So in other words, Josh, and I think you're making a very good point that many people out there just simply don't know what's on offer. And once it is presented to them, very often people are pleasantly surprised. So this archaic religion is quite current and these practices that are so limiting may in fact be liberating. Nice surprise for people. So that's a good observation, I think. And everybody has to agree with your second point that it needs to be done in a non-judgmental way, which brings me really to my question. So is that the case? Is that what's really happening? We can all speak about ideals. Is that what's really happening? So let's let's maybe try and frame this. What would motivate somebody? Let's try and frame it. Uh, anybody can have an idea on this. What would mo- motivate somebody? What are you thinking? And again, you could either share this from the perspective of somebody who is involved in Jewish outreach or from the perspective of somebody who is not observant and watching what goes on and perhaps being on the receiving end. So the question, what goes through the mind of the Jewish, of the person engaged in Jewish outreach? What goes through their mind? What prompts them? And I'll tell you, one of the reasons that this became a hot topic over the last few days is because there are, I mean, you have to expect if there's Jewish outreach anywhere in the world, it's obviously going to be on steroids in Israel. Because anywhere else in the world, you've got a small percentage of the people who you interact with will in fact be Jewish. I'm not talking about when you're at school or at shul. I'm talking about in the business world, on the street. It's going to be a small percentage. It's uh, you know, not that many people to work with. But when you're in Israel and everybody pretty much around you is Jewish or the vast majority, then it's a whole different business. So if somebody, for example, walks through your door, odds are they're Jewish. Odds are if you're in, in, interested in, in engaging them in doing a mitzvah, low-hanging fruit, there you've got it. Now in Israel, there's a lot of backlash. There are many people who feel quite 
broad-minded, modern, part of Western society, perhaps even more than they are part of Israeli society, uh, certainly of Jewish society. And they're quite offended by this, that there's, they, they feel there's interference, that religious parties influence the government to impose certain religious strictures onto the society, like you can't get public transport on a Shabbos, or whether or not you can even open your business on a Shabbos, what kind of food you can serve and eat. And then all the way into, you know, I, I went I went to a place and there was a guy and it was supposed to have been a professional context. And the next thing he's asking me to roll up my sleeve to put on tefillin or something like that. So this is a lot of conversations been going on in the last few days. And there are people who feel very strongly about it and they feel like, who are you to tell me what to do? And I think that's where we should explore a little bit because is is there room within Judaism to be judgmental? Is there room within Judaism to be preachy? Are we an evangelical nation? Now, we know that we're not in the, in the business of converting people to Judaism. But what about converting Jews to observance? Is that part of what we're supposed to be doing? And, uh, you know, so, so what goes on? What goes on in people's minds? Sometimes I do think, and I, obviously this is just conjecture, but sometimes I do think that there are people out there who believe that if they can score enough Jews doing mitzvahs or re-engaging in their Judaism, it will be quite useful for their own soul's growth. So it's a vested interest. It's looking at, uh, like you would, I suppose, with any business. You look and you see there is opportunity. I'm going to seed that opportunity, and I'm going to enjoy the return on investment. So there might be people, there might be people out there who feel a similar kind of thing. I'm not going to live in an environment where everybody's already observant because I have very little to offer there. But if I go into an environment where people are disengaged from their Judaism, perhaps not aware of what Judaism is about, and I can make a little bit of an impact, even if the impact I make is fractional compared to the pool of people who are available. But that's good. Then I've done something. I feel good about myself. I've been relevant. I've added value to the world, and I've propelled my own spirituality. I've put myself into another. I mean, we know that in Judaism, saving a life is a really big deal. And if that's true of saving a life physically, literally pulling somebody out of a, a swimming pool or, or out of a burning house, then by extension, it has to have value if you save a person spiritually. And, and it's great. It's great for me. I'm going to get fantastic return on investment. I have no doubt that there are people who are motivated that way. And I have no doubt that that's a misguided motivation. Nobody else should be there as the tool for you to benefit. I mean, that's that's, a, that's in a sense, I suppose, preying on people, taking advantage of people. They happen to be in a situation which is not as uh, spiritually fortunate, if we can use those words, as yours. And, and you're kind of taking advantage of that and, and using it to your own spiritual propulsion or whatever you want to call it. So uh, here's another tweet. Uh, somebody says, there are many out in this world who don't realize that they're, that they're part of this bigger tribe that they're loved and that there is a place for them. So outreach is spreading the love. Now, that's true, I think, to a large extent. I can tell you just from personal experience that there definitely are Jewish people in our world who are just not aware, just simply not aware. We don't see it as much in South Africa. I'm not saying we don't see it at all. We do. But in other places in the world, it's it's unfortunately fairly common where there are people who are Jewish in name or even not in name and completely oblivious to what that means and completely oblivious to the fact that they have a community that's ready to welcome them in. So 
those kinds of people, when when their their eyes are suddenly open, they're like, oh my gosh, look at this! There's, there's, there is a Jewish community that I belong to. That's that's. Uh, got a particular heritage that I can trace my own family to. It's quite liberating for people and it's very meaningful for people. So I do think that that tweet is certainly relevant. What are your thoughts? What do you think motivates a person to want to reach out and to touch another Jewish person in a Jewish way, get them to do a mitzvah? as an example. So what do you think? What do you think about that? What do you think motivates that? I'd love to hear your thoughts on 34519. WhatsApp line 0618951019. You can, as Ricky did, you can email on air at chaifm.com. Now consider this. Wonderful merchandise, clothing, and gifts at massively reduced prices. Want to know more? Go and see for yourself. Get to Norwood Mall because it's the January sidewalk sale right now. Mr. Price Home and Apparel, Circus Boutique, Linen Cabinet, House of Judaica, Jet, Clicks, Miniso, Body Shop, Lasers Jewelers, Bella G, and many more stores have special discounted items just for you. That's Norwood Mall's January sidewalk sale, which ends this Sunday, the 27th of January. Norwood Mall. Your mall, your moments. And Pick and Pay, Hyper Norwood also has pocket saving specials just for you. So they're selling their kosher melting moments biscuits at a sweet 89 rand 99 per kilo. Pick and Pay kosher chicken flatties are a very low 69.99 per kilo. Pick and Pay kosher roasted barbecue chickens are a sizzling 98.99 each. You can get kosher whole fresh chickens at an extremely low 49.99 per kilo. And they have kosher chicken schnitzels at just 169 rand 99 per kilo. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Nord Hyper and only while stocks last. That's Pick and Pay Hyper Nord, the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. So it's uh, the halfway mark. We're heading up towards 3 o'clock, talking today on Fresh Thinking about Jewish outreach. You're with Rabbi Shishla as you are every Thursday at this time. And I just thought we should we should have this conversation only because over the last few days I've heard a number of people saying very interesting things with very strong views about what they feel about Jewish outreach and many people feeling that it's coercion, feeling that it's inappropriate, that stay out of my business. It's got nothing to do with you, how I lead my life. And so I think it's interesting to get into the head, to get into the motivation, what would be the correct reason to engage in Jewish outreach and, and how? How do you see it? Here's uh, Delia who says, it is not an easy task. I have a, say- a saying that I picked up somewhere, which I paraphrase into, it's something I never knew I always wanted. It's quite a nice line that. Something I never knew I always wanted. Now, I'll tell you what that reminds me of. It reminds me a little bit of the story of the giving of the Torah. We know that the Jewish nation was fresh out of Egypt, and you have to try and imagine the psychological shift from being slaves to a horrible dictator in a morally skewed environment. And then the next thing you know, you're catapulted out of there in the desert and being presented with this overwhelming code for life, 613 
commandments. That's why we, we're very careful in Judaism. We don't call them the Ten Commandments. We call them Aseris Hadibro's Ten Statements because these were the ten that were stated publicly, but not to make the mistake that there's only ten commandments. There aren't. There's 613, and they have subtexts and uh, subtopics. So imagine just that psychological shift to stand there at the side of the mountain and be told this is what you need to do. Now you have to expect that I don't care that they had been slaves until then. Jews are Jews. We have opinions. And I can promise you that the moment we were given the opportunity to express those opinions, we did. And we have evidence of it because even before the Jews arrived at Mount Sinai, that's not a long time. I mean, they've just seen the greatest miracles of their lives and been liberated from slavery. They should be the happiest people on earth. And if you read what the Torah says, you hear that they had opinions. They had opinions about the journey. They had opinions about the route. They had opinions about the food. They had opinions about the drink. They had opinions about whether this was a good idea to leave in the first place. That's what happens when you liberate people. All the suppressed things that they wanted to be able to speak out on, they emerge so suddenly you've got this, this whole rabble of people who within days, days of this miraculous liberation are already fretting about this, that, and the other. Now they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. There's somewhere between two and a half million and three million people. We can extrapolate that from the fact that there were 600,000 males between 20 and 60. So you do the math. And they're, sitting, they're standing there at Mount Sinai. You have to expect you have to expect that just as when they stood at the foot of the sea, at the shores of the Red Sea, there was the splintering in the community, people saying, let's go this way, that way, fight, retreat, surrender. In the same way that you would expect that standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, there should have been the same kind of thing. Do we really want this? Do we know what we're in for? What kind of a code is this going to be? Will it be highly restrictive? Um, will there be wiggle room? How's it all going to work? Who's going to dictate to us what kind of things we should observe? Who's going to – are there going to be punishments associated? I mean they knew nothing. They really knew nothing. They had been given – the seven Orchid laws, the mitzvah of having a bris, they now knew that there was going to be an annual celebration of Pesach, and Moshe had alluded to the observance of Shabbos. That's all the background. That's the trailer that they watched for this great feature film called The Giving of the Torah. So you'd expect that standing there at the base of Sinai, you would expect there to be a lot of factions with all kinds of insights and perspectives. And we don't find that. As I mentioned earlier, the Torah specifically says that they stood there in the singular. Rashi says, quoting from the sages, like one person with one heart. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. How do you get everybody to do that? And then the Torah goes on to say that they told Moses, we'll do whatever God says. Really? When last did you find a Jewish person who was willing to accept a contract without having read it, reread it, made annotations and edits? We'll just do whatever he says. What happened over there? So the Talmud tells us that one of the things that happened is that God yanked Sinai out of the ground, dangled it over their heads, and said, Right, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be an amazing moment of free choice. Should you commit yourself to the contents of the document I'm about to present, then all's going to be well in the world. Should you choose 
not to commit to the Torah, well then this mountain that I've suspended over your heads, I'm just going to drop it on you. And to paraphrase the Talmud, this will be your burial spot. Uh-huh. That, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds a lot like religious coercion. Yes, I know. We're talking about God. We're not talking about an fallible human being who's trying to tell you that you have to up the moral standards of your life when you know that this is a person who's got their fingers in the till or doesn't speak nicely to their wife. Got it. We're not making a comparison over here between the imperfect, frummy, outreach person and God. But still, it does seem like God is advocating religious coercion because that's how he starts this thing. That's how Judaism launches with one Uber threat. So what are we supposed to learn from that? I mean, the fact that the Jews said yes, mm-mm, that can't be the lesson because that's, that's just practical. That's because we prefer to live. So we say, yes, we'll live. Can't be worse than having been slaves in Egypt, right? But there's got to be a lesson. The Torah does not tell us things just for reporting or history rec- recording. The, the Torah tells us things because they're lessons. The word Torah means lesson. So there's got to be a lesson in there. And, and that's, funnily enough, the lesson that should, I'm not saying it always does, but that should motivate a person to engage in Jewish outreach. It should only be for this reason, for, for the same kind of motivation that God had when he took that mountain and he hung it over their heads. So I don't want to just give it away. Come on, let's have a conversation over here. What do you think? What do you think God was thinking? What do you think God is trying to illustrate to us by making such a radical move, by almost, not almost, by actually threatening us, by painting us into a corner, and then afterwards, celebrating, oh, wow, this is amazing that I dedicated these people. Are they all accepted exactly what I said without even knowing the details? That's not a celebration, surely. I mean, the Talmud goes so far as to say, we now have the best excuse that we could turn around and say, we never really signed up for this thing wholeheartedly. We were pushed. We didn't jump. We were pushed. What do you think is going through God's mind, if that's even possible for a human to try and understand? What do you think the story is telling us about this concept of Jewish outreach, this concept of religious coercion, this idea of stuffing Judaism down the next person's throat. Because i got news for you. If anybody's doing it, this is probably the place they're drawing their inspiration from. So let's try and understand it. And if you do have a thought on it, Go ahead, by all means. You can SMS 34519 or WhatsApp 0618951019. Otherwise, tweet at FM or email on air at chaifm.com. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So cute. Somebody over here has tweeted a picture of a lost sheep. No words, just a picture of a lost sheep. But I think it does say a lot because, I mean, if you see a person, I suppose, in the context of uh, a lost sheep, they, I suppose the implication is supposed to be it's no fault of their own and they're in need of our care and concern. I imagine that that was the implication of that particular message. Uh, here's somebody on Twitter. Abraham says, responsibility and love. I suppose that means that it is our responsibility and it should be out of love. To reach out to the fellow Jew and, so to speak, bring them close to Judaism. Really nice tweet over here from uh, from Coco Pazzo. Says, I've seen many people shocked, actually shocked, at being accepted at a Chabad shul because they're so used to being judged. 
Isn't that sad? That a person should be shocked at the fact that they are accepted within their own religion. Sure. That's quite a thing. That's quite a thing. Um, so I hope that's, that's not common. I hope that's not common. Rene says God also wants to end Golos. That's the exile and the way it is to obey the lessons. So I suppose Rene's point is that we've got to get people on board so that we can get out of the current goddess experience. Okay, good point. And I don't think uh, any religious person would, would disagree with that. So let's go back to God spending that dramatic moment. I mean, just try and picture it in your mind's eye. There you are, a whole, wonderful, a whole group of hopeful, bright-eyed people looking forward to a better future now standing with a mountain dangling over their head and a bellowing divine voice saying either you accept the Torah or you're getting the mountain so what's really going on over there we do know we do know that sometimes the Torah speaks in a way that's just not exactly literal certainly when we're talking about the Talmudic expression of, of something like that. When the Talmud tells a story, it's not necessarily always so literal. But before we get to that, uh, here's a, a very intriguing and uh, one of my favorite rulings in Judaism. It's brought by Maimonides the Rambam based on the Talmud, which in turn is based on Scripture. So Maimonides says this. He says, what happens if you have a person, the specific example he's dealing with is you've got a guy who by rights needs to divorce his wife, but he refuses. The reason he refuses is because he's, he's stubborn. He's, uh, he wants to hurt her. Whatever the reason, he will refuses. Now, by rights, it's the correct thing for him to do to divorce his wife. Now, there's a problem because the Torah expects that divorce has to be willing. The man has to willingly give his wife the bill of divorce. Here's a guy who doesn't want to. So what are you supposed to do? So the Rambam uses an incredibly interesting expression. He says, That's an expression straight out of the Talmud. You force the guy until he says, I want to. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. That's coercion at its best. So you force a person into a situation and then pat yourself on the back and say, but they wanted to. That's dangerous stuff. There are people who do all kinds of really horrific things in this world and then turn around and claim that the victim actually wanted it. Is that what we're advocating? So that's where the Rambam then develops the idea further beyond what the Talmud says. And he says something magnificent. He says, you have to know that the nature of the Jewish soul is that by nature it wants to do whatever God wants And by nature, it wants to avoid whatever God forbids. That's the nature of our soul. The thing is, we're not always in touch with our soul. And so what happens is we put on layers and layers of opinion, experience, disappointment, resentment, temptation, all kinds of stuff that blurs our vision. In the language of the Talmud, it's called some form of spiritual insanity. So we're just not thinking as our soul Thinks. Now you have to remember that we are our soul. So that means we've disconnected from our true self. That's how Maimonides frames it. Just think about that for a second. That any time that a Jewish person behaves in a way that is in contrast to what Judaism expects, it's in contrast to what their true self is all about. Now, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It doesn't mean that every person's true self looks identical. It just means that we have the same urge somewhere deep inside us 
And the funny thing is it flares up at weird times. And that's why you'll find, uh, to me, there was a beautiful story just a couple of weeks ago. I don't know exactly when the story broke about this Israeli top-of-the-charts pop star, Omer Adam, who was invited to do the headline act at Eurovision this year, which is going to be in Israel. And he turned it down because it would require rehearsals on Shabbos. Now, the man is not observant, but there's a moment where that true self kind of flares up and says, incredible fame and exposure, 25-year-old very much on the scene, very much climbing the ladder or a connection to something that's just integral to who I am. And so he opted for the true self. It's a phenomenal story because nobody expected it. Nobody expected that kind of a response. And there it was. So we've got that part of ourselves. And what's interesting is it's, it's usually under wraps until something happens that's a catalyst, shakes us, Bounces us against the wall and says, you've got to make a decision now. You've got to make a call. Who are you really? You've lived this kind of middle of the road kind of life and everything was fine. And now suddenly it's a question of, so who are you really? Sadly, a lot of the time it's anti-Semitism that brings us to that point. Look at Jewish history and again and again and again, you will see people who did really very little, if anything, to experienced their Judaism in good times, but the minute there was a pogrom, an inquisition, a holocaust, suddenly you find so many of these people were gushing Judaism. And, and it's weird because why didn't you do it when it was easy? Why, why now? It's a funny thing. Look at the story of Jews in communist Russia and how much sacrifice they were willing to make for Jewish things that they didn't necessarily keep the minute the pressure was off. So it's a funny thing about us. Deep within us, that's ourself. This is our truth. We don't like to always face it. Sometimes we don't believe it. Sometimes we deny it. Sometimes we feel that our life is in contrast to it until that major catalyst hits. Until that moment where, as the, as the cliche goes, we're in the foxhole and now there's no atheist. In other words, it, it could be God forbid illness, it could be a crisis, it could be an anti-Semite, or it could be God in your face. So the Rambam's view of the guy who does not want to divorce his wife is because nobody's, nobody's made the choice dramatic enough for him. So once we come on his door, we start pounding on his door, we say, listen here, boy, Chickle, if you're not going to do what you should, we're coming back with baseball bats. Now he's going to make a decision over here. Who's the real me? Is the real me the, the stubborn guy? Is the real me the uh, the, the uh, the person who, who just wants to rile everybody up and, and a dafka? Or is the real me somebody says, you know what, this is a mitzvah and I should be doing it. When you've got God in your face, it's as compelling as if there's a mountain over your head. He, God wasn't threatening actually with a mountain. The Talmud is using a metaphoric concept to show us that it was just so powerful. The experience, they had seen God in their face. They had seen the death of the firstborns, the splitting of the sea. They were eating manna that fell from heaven. Now they were going to have the greatest divine revelation ever in history, never to be repeated until the Messianic age. That's so in your face. That is so compelling. That is the ultimate coercion. You know why it's the ultimate coercion? Because it's not something from the outside that's pushing you in a particular direction. It's a sudden realization that it's actually pulling you from within yourself. And there's nothing more powerful than that. 
when suddenly you feel that every fiber of who you are resonates perfectly with what this is. I've seen that happen with people. It's an amazing thing where, where you've got somebody who had absolutely no connection to anything of Jewish meaning. And then for the first time in their life, they participate in a Pesach Seder or put on tefillin or light a Shabbos candle. And then they say, I don't know what happened over there. I don't understand what I've just done. And I don't understand what it means. And I don't know why I did it other than the fact that you badgered me. But gee, this talks to me. There's some, something over here resonates. There's nothing more compelling in the world than when you actually know that it is you. And that's what happened in Mount Sinai. Suddenly they know this is, that was the collective realization. This is us. This is our true self. Torah is the book version of our souls. We're in. Can't be anywhere else. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So that's really what's going on, I suppose, when a person is engaged in Jewish outreach. Well, that's what should be going on. You see, the most terrible way to approach Jewish outreach is from a perspective of, I am at a completely different spiritual level to you, and I am stacked with knowledge, and I have these amazing experiences, and you are just this kind of wretched individual who is plodding along in your life until I come along and save you. Horrible. Horrible. That's not in any way, shape, or form how a Jewish person is supposed to think, look at another person, or behave. What we are supposed to do is what God did, to see within somebody else that this is your truth. This is your truth. I'm not here to teach you, actually. If I'm fortunate, maybe I'll be the catalyst for you to recognize something about yourself that's so powerful, that's as beautiful in you as it is in me that makes you as holy as I am that means that there's no advantage to my situation over yours because we both have this fundamentally pristine core of godliness in in plain English in plain English what should motivate a person to Jewish outreach should be because you see something so incredible in that person not that you say that you see it not that you pay lip service to some kind of an ideal but you actually look at them and that's what you see You actually look at that person, you see, wow, that person has this amazing neshama. That person will thank me for the access to that neshama. And and the the tools that I have is I've got to to create a little bit of pressure. (laughs) Not pressure in a nasty way, but, you know, sometimes you've got to confront things. And when a Jew confronts Judaism, not necessarily because they chose to, not because they thought it was going to be this timing, not because it was a convenient place, or a convenient choice of mitzvah, something happens, something clicks, something wakes up. So the motivating element of outreach should always be the greatness and value of that person because of their soul, and nothing about the greatness and value of me as the teacher, as the preacher, as the outreach professional, or anything like that. I just might be the person who God has placed in a particular place at a particular time to try and ignite a particular spark. If I'm fortunate, I'll have that opportunity. If I'm too caught up in myself, I'll probably miss that opportunity. And I highly, highly doubt that there's any person who'll get the feeling from somebody who has that attitude that they're being judged, that they're being coerced, 
or that they're being dragged into some kind of a situation that's foreign, uncomfortable, and really of no value to them. So it all boils down to how we see the next person. And there's really very little that sits at the core of Judaism more than to learn how to see the next person with absolute value, with absolute greatness, with absolute connection to God. So that's, I suppose, something that we could think about. There were a few other messages that went a little bit off topic, so I'm going to leave them for now. But it's always great to have a conversation with you. Keep in touch. Send some ideas through if there's a topic that you'd like us to discuss here on Fresh Thinking. Best way is on air at chayfm.com or tweet me at Rabbi Shish. Who knows? Maybe your topic will be the one that we discuss next week. Till then, have a great Shabbos. It is a very interesting Torah portion this week. It's about the giving of the Torah. Pop over to Shul and hear it. See what it's all about. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Have a wonderful week ahead. Lots of success in everything you do.